0: Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, this is Talking Impact brought to you by the Institute for Social Innovation and Impact at the University of Northampton. My name is Richard Hazenberg, and every two months I'll be joined by a leading social innovator to talk to us about the social innovations that they're bringing to their community and the good work that they're doing for their social enterprises. Today I'm joined by Mike Britton from Goodwill Solutions CIC, the country's leading and largest logistics social enterprise firm. Hi Mike.
1: Hi Richard. How are
0: you? I'm fine, how are you? Not too bad, thanks, not too bad. Um, I mean, let's start off by talking about social innovation. What does social innovation mean to you as a social entrepreneur?
1: Well, first of all, I think uh, it's finding new ways to deal with old problems and to avoid put stuff in place to avoid new problems coming out of your solutions. So, for example, finding ways to um, get ex-offenders into work reduces recidivism, it also improves their lives and the, the lives of their family and immediate surroundings. Uh, it also contributes to the economy through taxation, reduction, and benefits. So, actually, by getting people who've offended in the past into work, you have a massive effect on changing your local community and the national society.
0: Uh, I really like that take, Mike. This idea that it's 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 you know new solutions to old problems. It, a lot of this isn't sort of reinventing the wheel, is it? I mean, it's, no. you know, it's, it's quite, it, it's quite sort of intuitive. And if you if you think about, I mean, you talk about the offending there. So if we think about the work that you do with Goodwill, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Goodwill to put uh, a bit of flesh on the bone as to what you're talking about in relation to social innovation.
1: Sure. Um, in 2007, I was a corporate project manager uh, and I'd really done everything I wanted to do. I worked for the same business for a well, two businesses uh, for 23 years in in total. And I'd got to the point in my career where uh, I'd done what I wanted to do. I'd I'd created a a reasonable pension pot for myself. I'm married, but I don't have any children. So I've got nobody to put through university. So it was really a case of what did I want to do with the rest of my life. Uh, I was 48 at the time. Uh, It was still had a, a, a career left in me somewhere. I didn't know where it wanted to be. Did I want to continue doing project management? I'd done that. I was quite, you know, happy with what I'd achieved in my time. So I thought, well, what can I do if I want to change roles? So I looked at uh, charities and I felt charities like the status quo And I did, I'm a change manager, so I didn't really think I'd fit extremely well into that. I also looked at local government and authorities and didn't feel that was a right fit for me. And so I looked at myself and I thought, what can I do? What have I done in the past that I can do now that will make a difference to the community around me. I thought, well if I start a business whose purpose was actually to deliver change to the community, that would be a good starting point. So I gave the business I was with a year's notice so that I could complete and finish some of the projects I was on and get the others to hand over points and things like that. And uh, in 2008, I borrowed a small warehouse. There were three of us and we set up Goodwill Solutions and we opened the door and somebody said to me, what are we going to do? Uh, and I said, well, we're going to build a national or international business that does social good, that relies on its own income generation through commercial contracts to pay for its social mission. And that was day one of when of when we really started. Of course, i would mapped out some ideas prior to that. Not in huge detail, because you know me by now, Richard. I'm not a detail man. I tend to yep. see the vision and want to go for it. Uh, and and that's been the core mission of Goodwill Solutions to create um, social innovation, impact, and change, but paid for by commercial activity.
0: Uh, and this idea that you know that you wanted to put something back into society. I mean, Kevin Spacey um, was recently quoted, I think, saying that you know when those who those who get to the top of the elevator in life have a moral obligation to send that elevator back down to the ground floor. Uh, you know. Does that call out to anything within you? Is that was that how you felt when it came to setting up Goodwill Solutions? I
1: understand. I understand completely what what he means by that framework. Uh, with me, it was I had a comfortable life. I'd always had a. I'd worked hard. I was. I wasn't a great uh, academic at school. I left school uh, reasonably early, um, with very little qualification, uh, and so I sort of found my way through life in different ways uh, I, i've always been a bit creative and never really uh, academically brilliant so doing new things uh, changing way things were done and finding better ways to do them was something that was a thread probably throughout my life uh, particularly in project management which always have a start and a finish it's great i'm the world's worst administrator i'm not a great operations manager because i need new ideas and new things to keep going i think um Finding ways to use, uh, harness the power of commercial activity to, to support those disadvantaged in society is actually the right way to do things. If somebody uh, enjoys a standard of living because they've, they've worked through their lives and others are struggling, then what's wrong with helping? And what's wrong with supporting? But I'm more of the ethos that I believe that what we should do is help those people who are disadvantaged to change their lives not to support them in disadvantage. So actually, how do we make their lives better rather than just more comfortable?
0: I want to come back to what you said about, you know, you said you left school and and you weren't sort of um, academically engaged, but actually coming up with new ideas and new solutions to problems is something that's kind of been inherent to you your whole life. So you've, you've, could we argue that you've always been an innovator and entrepreneur, if not necessarily a social innovator and social entrepreneur?
1: You see, yeah, I, I never claim to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tend to be somebody who likes starting new things and doing stuff. That's how I see myself. You know, somebody, uh, I, have, I have plenty of ideas. Most of them are absolute rubbish. But the key is I've got a really good team around me who can stand up and say, actually, that's rubbish. You don't need to do that. And we can review ideas as we go forward. So we, we have lots of things that we think about doing. We then refine them to the ones that are actually doable. And then the ones that actually make sense out of that, and they're the ones we normally get round to starting. So, you know, the, I strongly encourage all of the team at Goodwill Solutions to to contribute if they see something that that really is something we should be looking at to contribute and throw that in. I think, um, I, you know, charities have a role in life, and that is to uh, support uh, programs and causes that that alleviate misery and poverty and, and and other areas uh social businesses that isn't, we don't have the same mission we have the same the mission we have i see uh is that we are there to help people improve their lives uh and support them in different ways i don't i'm not here to maintain people in disadvantage that's not what i do it's about improving people's position in life so, you know, social mobility, I suppose you could call it that. How do we, how do we encourage people to, to, to become mobile in society? How do we encourage people who've been out of work for a long period of time? Maybe uh, if they you know, could be relevant to lots of things, it might be uh, learning difficulties, it might be uh, ex-offenders, it might be other matters. Might be people like me disengaging early from employment, I, oh, uh, from education. I was very lucky. I actually, uh, my father said, get a trade. And so I was sort of at the age of 16, I was uh, into an apprenticeship and, that, and I never really stopped working since then. But a lot of people don't. They actually disengage with education and don't quite engage with employment. And then that gap suddenly grows and that becomes disadvantaged and, and lots of issues come in with that. How do we get and help people who have, who are in that position, whether ex-offenders, whether disaffected youth, and I don't know if that's a term they still use nowadays, but they used to use it some years ago, whether people who are challenged in other ways, how do we get them to, to join in uh, the work system uh, and become s- sustainable in their own rights and better their lives for the social contact at work? My biggest social contact is at work. I spend nine, 10, 11, 12 hours a day at work. I spend two or three hours maybe with my wife. So where's my biggest social input from the 30 people I work with over nine, 10, 11, 12 hours or my wife who I see a couple of hours of an evening. You know, work is the position of work. It's not just about earning money. It's actually social integration, social development, meeting with a wider range of people. That's what we need to help people who haven't managed to achieve that themselves to do for whatever reason.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. With you. I think the the impact of, of work and the workplace on, on people is hugely powerful. Let's go back to talk about Goodwill then. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, we got up to the point that you'd established Goodwill in two thousand and nine. Now you you you're one of the you are the largest logistics social enterprise in the country. You're the fastest growing social enterprise in the country, or certainly one of the fastest growing social enterprises in the country. That's a hell of an achievement to have made inside eight years. Do you want to talk us through that that journey over the last eight years and what have been the key moments for the for the organization in terms of developing your innovative ideas and growing the business
1: from a social business point of view you have to wear two hats one is business and that means getting enough money in to pay your bills pay your staff hopefully pay yourself something uh, and in the early stages and create a pool of money for developing the business going forward but at the same time you have to wear the social delivery hat of making sure that as a community interest company we do fulfil our obligations to uh, uh, our mission which is actually creating social change, impact and value. Uh, So it's, it's a balancing thing but what you must always remember or what I always try to remember is if I don't make the business successful this year I can't deliver social change next year because the business will cease to exist. So you have to have a robust business platform, whether a social business or or a purely commercial business. You then have to make sure that you understand your mission. So our our commercial mission is actually very simple. We do logistics and warehouse services for blue-chip retailers in the UK uh, and other blue-chip businesses, and we match some of them to overseas manufacturers and bring product to support sales for the UK retailers through our warehouse on a pick label a dispatch delivery system that's part of the model we also um, look and say okay how do we use this infrastructure and how do we use profits to change people's lives so there so each year on one of the programs we run we run 120 people through a four-week back-to-work program we call it back-to-work program which is changing from being out of work for a long period getting it back into the work environment and um so 120 people a year go through that program we pay for all the costs including forklift training equipment space refreshments all sorts of things safety wear out of our profits we use the infrastructure of the business as that model it's a work experience program with accredited and non-accredited training elements and the target is to get employment at the back end of four weeks there's a lot of Back to work, no, let me rephrase that. There's a lot of work skills programs around that are funded. Most of them are targeted at six to 12 months uh, duration. And to be honest, they're wrong because the vast majority of people that I experience, people who are out of work, want one thing, and that's to get into work. What they don't have is a route to get into work. Uh, and when you've got six to 12 months, you're likely to get a lot of people disengaging from those programs because they're too long. They're too drawn out. Two days a week or one and a half days a week for 26 weeks or 52 weeks. Actually, no, what they want is something quicker and earlier than that. Uh, we have about a 70% success rate, a 70% success rate in our back-to-work program of getting people into work at at all by week six. So four weeks of program. And, and by the time they finish the program, within two weeks, we're getting about 70% into work Uh of the people who come through our programme are ex-offenders. And a lot of them with with long and chequered careers or long stays in prison. So they're the more challenging group, or one of the more challenging groups, should we say. Uh, It really comes down to, and this is where I'm, you know me, I'm not politically correct in many areas, but one of the things I think is wrong is the funding models are wrong. We don't rely on funding and grant for our programme because there's nothing out there that fits that. We can't get funding for a four-week program, so which is fine because we've always paid for that out of profits anyway, and we will continue to do so. But when models are funded for six and twelve months on a on a a program that really shouldn't be more than six weeks or maybe eight tops to change somebody's life, you need you know they need to engage. You need to show innovation in the approach. So therefore, we get people working in teams in the warehouse. We, we train them in teams, we train them in groups for the Fork training. That takes about six days out of the 24 days they're with us. There's other training elements that we bring into play and they become engaged with the work ethos and the work, you know, it's a change. It's not going to a training programme. It's actually coming into a form of uh, work structure. They have to be there by a certain time when everybody starts. They stay until the end of the day when everybody else finishes. They have breaks at the same time as, as the the employees in the warehouse so it's inducting them into a work program of that they can relate to as work experience strong work experience like a working environment they're then by the end of the four weeks most of them are well engaged wanting to get into work and have the skills at that stage because we've developed them over the previous four weeks to get into that work Um, that's the difference most programs don't have that target They, they try to grow a broad base of skills in the individual that makes them more employable well all we do is we find which employers are employing in what time frames we train the people to the skills that employer needs we train them on the equipment that the, that employer is using and so as they come out of the program it coincides with the time when the employer is is actually actively recruiting and they match and they're the best match for that employer because they've got all the skills that that employer needs, with the right mechanical handling equipment licenses. Who else is he going to employ? He or she.
0: And I mean, you're working with some. You alluded to it there. A lot of people that have a headfending histories that have just been released from prison or on probation for certain offences. I mean, that's a really challenging group to work with. What challenges does that pose for you? Within the business, both in terms of being competitive, but actually also managing this with your staff, because I could imagine that some staff might be uncomfortable working alongside uh, ex
1: offenders. Certain ex offenders, yeah. Um, I think, you know, going back to when we formed the business, um, adult ex offenders, people over 23, I think it was at the time, up to the age of 65, 70, um, there was no provision for support for. It was all about NEETs and it was about young offenders under the age of 23 and things like that and and i felt that was wrong and i felt that the biggest impact we could have is by changing people whose potential life was going to be in the in a cycle of reoffending in some ways and so we chose to tackle that there was no funding no grant no anything like that so we had to produce enough money in the business to support what we wanted to do and we can do work experience for Minimal cost, there's supervision, there was cups of tea, and we can give them work experience. But it's not about just work experience; it's about actually how to de- develop the skills they will need to survive in a competitive employment arena. So the profit we had to make was it uh, had to be enough to cover our training programs, uh, buying in the services of Fortress trainers, buying equipment uh, to have them so they can be trained on it, and other things around that area. So. That was where we started really. Back. And, you know, the early years, the first two years were about modelling Goodwill Solutions, figuring out what we were going to do, figuring out what we did do well and what we didn't do well, and then looking to do more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. Uh, by 2010, we sort of had an idea where we wanted to take the organisation. Um, and so we started to look and develop some of the... Potential customer routes we had we We identified a niche in the market to do with uh, furniture supply uh, through the internet um, Which um, we sort of made approaches to some small medium and large retailers and started to capture some customers on a pick label dispatch and delivery service uh, we then f- sort of during 2010 to 2013 grew that base and then in really in 2013 we launched proper uh, with some significant contracts uh, end of 2012, really, and that's where we've had the business growth from. Um, that allows us to bring more profits in, which allows us to do a lot more social impact and change. For example, um, we adopted a Hemingwell Community Centre, com- a skill- community and skills centre, which was in danger of closing. It actually was going to close uh, because uh, it was a challenging environment to work in. It was one of the 8% most deprived wards in the UK. This Hemingwell is. Near attached in within Wellingborough, a borough, uh, there was little activity going on, and the body that was looking after the place had handed the lease in because they couldn't make it work anymore. And so we stepped in; we took on the financial responsibility for that building. It's about uh, probably about forty thousand a year. We we ring fence to cover the cost to make sure everything's done. We've introduced uh, engagement programs with the local community. We're providing uh, cooking programs for people who don't know how to uh, manage properly on a a low budget to alleviate food poverty. We're bringing in employment engagement programs to help people who can't get employment on their own to move nearer to uh, employment and gain employment. Uh, Education programs we're bringing in. Lots of things. We're bringing in things like um, the uh, Scouts, Cubs and Brownies to engage with youth at a younger level. Uh, The emergency services, Cadet Force to move into... Hemingwell. So there's lots of stuff, socially focused stuff that we're bringing in to work uh, closely with the community in that area. We also supported the Northampton Borough Council on opening the new Rough Sleeper Centre, the night shelter. And the idea of that is, is actually to take away the need for sleeping rough in Northampton. By having a night shelter where people are engaged and they're directed to the night shelter to spend the night from 9 at night to 9 in the morning, people are safer. We can engage with people. We can find out why they're on the streets. We can start to help them plan resolutions to get off the streets. Some will be put into accommodation. Uh, some may need further support into employment or education. Uh, and and so there's a whole compound mix of stuff that we do through our profits. Now, we don't massively publicise them. I know the University of uh, Northampton uh, write a social impact report for us on a regular basis, which is the only communicatable tool we we really use Um, so we we tend to focus on delivering what we do rather than going out and telling the world what we do
0: there's so many areas here that you're touching on Mike, that I think are are so relevant to 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 social innovation one of them is you talk about modeling innovation I think that there's often a a feeling that you come up with an innovative idea whether it's socially innovative or not is kind of by the by, and it's a great idea, and it just works off the bat. But actually, you seem to be suggesting that the first two years is really we've got this idea, we know what we want to do, but we have to spend a couple of years working out exactly how it's going to
1: work to make it sustainable. I mean, is that fair reflection? Yeah, and I think you've touched on an area which I'm, which is close to my heart. You know, that there's um, uh, a lot of social organisations that exist. On, uh, and attract their income by funding grant and contracted work. And this, you know, in the right arena for the right organisations, that's fine. But I think there there needs to be a view that actually commercial work isn't a bad thing to earn money from. Where in the past, it's it's been very much, you know, if you make a profit, you can't possibly be a social organisation because you make a profit simply for that purpose. Actually, it's not that. It's how you use the profit that's the key. You know? Um, and so... I think there's a whole range of social businesses that are waiting to be created out there, under any auspice. So you can be a printer and be a social business. It doesn't just because you're a printer doesn't mean you can't be a social business. You know what are your recruitment policies? How do they range? You know who do you employ? Who do you not employ? How do you develop people? Uh, How do you help? Uh, alleviate families what interventions can you make with profits to your local community uh you know at goodwill solutions 65 percent of my workforce is um people with disadvantages and that includes ex-offenders and one point i didn't touch on with you uh which you raised earlier was how do my staff uh you know take the fact we work with ex-offenders well part of the answer is 65 percent of them have disadvantaged have disadvantaged backgrounds including ex-offending so um they they're fully aware of why we're there to help people change their lives and, and change take new directions the other the other 35 there's probably 20 percent of those are professionals in the industry who know the mission who who've shared it with me have developed it so they know why we're there we're there to create a robust, sustainable business that delivers social impact and change. So they know the mission. And there's 15% of people we've recruited as we've grown and we we, we share the mission of the business with, with everybody. And people who don't want to work with ex-offenders don't have to work for Google Solutions. You know, that is what we do. And uh, ironically, I've had two instances where people have uh, raised issues about new people who are either on the four week programme or, or have become employees with the business and both of them have been from ex-offenders and uh, one instance was more significant than the other, one I dealt with relatively easily, one chap had worked for us for seven or eight months had raised concerns because somebody else had come along with, uh, they'd committed a type of offence that he didn't like and he said, you know, I'm, I'm not very happy about working with this person because of their offending behavior i said well hang on do you remember when you come to us do you remember we you know yeah but it's a different type of events i said yeah but you know if you look at your, your your history was prolific offending regular daily offending and we didn't say we're not prepared to work with you we're not prepared to take the risk with you that is our mission our mission is actually to help people change their lives and if it means taking people who other people wouldn't help Into our fold to support them in the direction of change for them, and I'll I'll make another point here. We're not here to support people who don't want to change their lives. They've got to have a commitment to wanting to get to a different place in their lives and change their lives. Then they can. In our program is is, is effective and works for them. So it it comes to the point where I said to the chap, look, you know, you've had eight months with us now. You're welcome. You know, you're employee. I'm not saying anything to you, but you've got to remember you don't have the choice of who we help as a business to get to a better place in their lives you have to accept it could be anybody and everybody it's if they fit the model that we've got and we you know they are heading that way then that's it if you don't like that then your option is to go and find another business that will employ you and move on
0: I mean dare I say it, it sounds like you're fostering a sort of an empathy amongst the staff with each other amongst you know between them and, and within the business, I mean, do you, do you feel that Goodwill Solutions is quite an empathetic place to work? I,
1: I think I think it is, but it's still very professional. And, and the people who come through our program, you know, focus on the commercial delivery of what they do. Uh, the the employees, you know, uh, the most important thing to them is to really get a good week in, get a you know, earn their their wages, but at the same time deliver an excellent service to our customers. Uh, making sure that the, the customers' needs are met, irrespective of the level within the business. Um, but there's also the benefit of people who are employed within the business, a lot of them, have walked the walk of our clients and have been there and have known how hard it is and how difficult it is to change when you, people aren't willing to open doors to you. And also what goes on in their minds sometimes as to whether they really want to change so I've got a fantastic barometer, barometer in the warehouse uh, and, and uh, the rest of the environment that understands the clients better than people who haven't walked that walk before. And they also know the ones who are playing the game. And they, it's, it's a fairly uh, interesting situation. You see a new team, a new group come in. There's only, well, there only three starters a week for 40 weeks a year. That's 120. So a new three come in. Somebody in the warehouse somewhere will know most of those people. They'll also know that you know what their motivations are for the change, uh, or some of the motivations, and they'll also know if they're serious or not. Now we have a very rigorous process to get through, and there's a waiting list for our programmes, uh, and it's rigorous in that we, if people don't really aren't showing signs that they really want to change, then actually they don't get on the programme. So it's you know they've got to work hard to get on the programme. But then the first day, most of them are there. They're wandering around, not sure why they're there and thinking it's just another program. By the second or third days you can actually see they're starting to engage and the staff are motivating them in various different ways uh, to you know, be involved and suddenly by the end of the first week it's as if they've been there forever. They're part of the team. And that's where the, the significance of, of the broad spectrum of employees I have really plays a, a thing
0: it's welcoming them into the fold basically and they feel that, I mean they feel that, that welcome
1: yeah and, and guiding them to act in the right way within because it's peers the people that they've probably known over some years some of them at least and, and you know they, they, I'll be perfectly honest sometimes they, you know, one or two of them might tap one on the shoulder and say hey you know this isn't a game here this is a serious business we are doing this so you need to engage with the programme
0: the last area I want to talk about is related to the title of the podcast I mean it's called Talking Impact and we've obviously talked about goodwill in your history and we've talked about social innovation and what you see as, uh, as innovative and entrepreneurial. But what about the world of impact measurement? I know that you've talked about having impact measurement work done by the university. What's your take on impact measurement and how do you think that that positively and or negatively affects um, social businesses and innov- innovators like yourself?
1: I think it's important to understand if you are attempting to create social impact, that you understand whether you're achieving this or not. I think what's happened is there's probably a a large industry, which costs a lot of money, to write significant reports. And I'm not popping at the university, I'm just saying generally. And it ends up that many social organisations spend 50% of their time either writing bids or creating reports to justify the spending of the thing that actually that's 50% of the activity that could be done in social arena or, or less than, you know, you could reduce that time if social impact uh, reporting were easier. And I know that um, the University of Northampton has had some models recently that w- we've been looking at with them uh, over a couple of years now uh, that simplifies how to capture information and make it very easy to manage your social, easier to manage your social impact. There's always going to be a need for accurate reporting of what you deliver and how you change it. I think one of the complexities I've found is, um, to me, seeing somebody who hasn't worked for for a number of years, who perhaps been into prison, has probably got a broken family around him somehow, him or her, and actually gets into their first job or gets their first ever qualification. Seeing that happen, to me, is, is how I measure social impact. You know, from a, a daily point of view, bringing the stuff together and and uh, painting the picture of what happens in a year or each year, uh, my eyes often glaze over at that point.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's two levels, isn't it? From what you're saying, there's that intuitive impact where you know you can't necessarily measure it, you can't put it into report, but you see it in the individuals. You see this change that you're talking about with them. Uh, where a person comes in and within a week you just see a complete change in their whole demeanour and their approach and attitude to work and of course i mean absolutely that's impact um but of course then there is that 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 pressure to me- to to measure um and i hear what you're saying about the the measurement within uh of impact within the third sector because i think that sometimes what where the organizations fall down is they don't approach it from a proportional angle mm. you know if you're a hundred thousand pound turnover business there's no reason or know where you should be spending 10,000 pounds on social impact measurement. I mean, it, it, you know, that's ridiculous. That's okay. um, so yeah, I absolutely see the, 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 the issues around proportionality. I mean, you've obviously had a few impact measurement reports done for you by the by the university in the past. What, what were sort What were the benefits that, that came out of that? And did, did it identify that you were delivering the impact, impact that you thought you were?
1: Well, uh, I think there's a few things. One is, if we, if we look in uh, the, the model, the core model, is not funded, therefore we don't actually we're not obliged to write social impact reports for funders and and things like that. So we do it because we choose to do it, and we we realise that as we grow, we need to have a wider communication process of what we of what the the reason for being is other other than a, a commercial structure to a business. We work well in the commercial world; we can communicate effectively there. We needed to communicate effectively in the social world as well. Um, so that's one of the things we saw Uh, I think um, going on from there it's helps us to understand whether our programs are effective although they're retrospective you know because if you if you have social impact reporting each year and it takes three to four months for the report to be constructed and comes out it's 18 months late for knowing what happened on week one of the year but it does allow us to look and say, actually, have we been as effective as we believe we've been? Because, you know, we will have um, review programs inside the business. We will look at the programs. We will, look, we will look at the rolling statistics for the year of how many people are achieving employment on the back of our programs. How many people are passing their fortune tests? How many people are getting MVQ level ones? How many people are uh, gaining other uh, uh, accreditations or non-accredited training elements being done? and what, you know, the finish rate and, and how successful, we can get a feel for that, but that actually captures it into a different term. We don't, internally, we don't measure um, the cost or benefit to society of, of, of getting somebody into work who's been out of work, especially if they've got an offending history and therefore the Ministry of Justice costs, benefit, uh, DWP costs and all the bits that come. We don't even consider that. We, not in our daily operations, our, you know, our single focus is to help people who want to change their life to, to make that change happen, and that's our focus there. But when you get to um, the sort of the view of what the direction the business is going and how it can move forward in its social impact, then we have to bring all the elements we do. We have to look at. You know what impact support in the night shelter has had what impact the community center at Hemingwell has, has had what are our, our back to work programs the Learning Academy which I haven't mentioned yet which is a fairly new uh, body for. It's about 18 months two years old now it, since its conception that's looking at um, driving a lot of engagement and, and development and uh, towards a path towards employment because at Goodwill Solutions we deal with a very narrow slice and that is people we think can be made work-ready and ready for employment within four weeks. So it's that's the slice we deal with, and and it's quite actually a, quite a wide range, believe it or not. What we don't do is pre-employment work in other forms.
0: So it sounds to me, from the impact measurement side of things, then that, that actually what you're what you're talking about is that. On a day-to-day basis, it, it, it's not massively useful because the the lead times for the data gathering are, are too long. You have to just trust your in, intuition there in seeing the change. But actually, in the long term, it's quite a useful strategic organisational development tool.
1: Yes, very much so. I think, I think certainly social impact reporting will help you form the strategy for your social impact programmes going forward and whilst reviewing the ones you've already got in place. But they are a benchmark down the line for the review process. Much more useful for forwards planning.
0: Before we end the first half of the of the podcast, I, there's a question that that comes up quite a few times when I'm at conferences or when um, you know I'm talking to other people in the sector, and it's a bit tongue in cheek. But I just wanted to get your get your take on it. Obviously, social enterprises and social innovators are trying to develop good for the community. They offer and operate on non-profit models or limited-profit models. In your mind, when we're looking at socially responsible business, can a social entrepreneur or social innovator, can they drive a Ferrari?
1: You've got to look at the the models that are available and and we haven't really touched on the structures of of social organisations yet, but the community interest company structure, CIC, which is the one we've chosen, has a buy guarantee model or a buy share model. Now the buy guarantee model is, uh, in my opinion, is excellent for spin-off organisations to move budgets out of uh, local government or health or education into separate divisions, i.e., separate businesses that come with a structure to their budget, and they can transfer people across at salaries. I think ideal for that. But there's a new vein coming, uh, which has been coming, you know, over the last twenty odd years, where. Uh, There is risk, personal risk involved, there is sacrifice involved, and there has to be upside of that for people who want to go through that. Imagine somebody leaving the university, say at 23 or 24 years old, and they have a choice in life. Do I become a commercial manager or do I work or create a social business? And suppose they they scrape together 200 pound and they start a social business and they take no salary for the first 18 months or year or minimal salary and the first three or four years they're trying to develop their model and get it working and things and they forego the benefit of employment where you get a guaranteed wage every month to drive and create a, a innovative model of social change well when do they get that back they get that back when they have a successful business, they're going to afford to pay themselves a reasonable salary. And we mustn't ever think that because we work in a social world, we must wear sackcloth and ashes and drive around in a 30-year-old larder. Because who would we attract to work in social businesses? Well, personally, I want the best people out in the market to work in social businesses. And that student who started their own thing at the age of... 40 or 50 when they put their whole life into driving that and making that social business a national or international business right should they just leave with nothing at the end of that or should it work exactly as the CIC regulators office originally set it up to work as being uh, a model like a limited company that has potential growth that can expand and develop wealth that could be used for social purposes uh, and you know but that doesn't mean that the person who started it should be the only person in the whole model not to, not to benefit from the growth of that model.
0: So, so that's a yes from you then, Mike. Whether they choose a Ferrari <laughs> or
1: whether they choose to have a Ford Cort, uh, Cortina or, Viva or Vox or Viva is up to them.
0: But, but they should be allowed to benefit they should from be, the fruits of their life, yeah.
1: They should be rewarded for what they've done. In the same way as people who work on purely funded models have the security... Of a salary within that whereas the innovators tend not to I was, I was not all in it, but sorry i'm no 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 you know, that's I mean, the best. ones who are willing to take risk put their own money up to start something and develop and sacrifice to make that happen there should be mechanisms that allow them to recover that later there's nothing wrong with money it's the abuse of money or the misuse of money where the problem is Brilliant. Okay, that's great. Thanks,
0: Mike. Well, you know, do you agree with Mike on that point? Do you disagree? If you have any thoughts or comments on that, any questions, please contact us at ISOI at northampton.ac.uk. Come back after the break where me and Mike will be discussing the community interest company structure and Mike's work in that field with the regulator. Music. Okay so welcome back to the second half of the Talking Impact podcast. As we said this second part is going to be us talking about a current affairs issue of the week or something to do with the third sector and today we've got Mike Britton here from Goodwill Solutions CIC and we're going to be talking about the Community Interest Company form that he's adopted for his company. Mike's been doing some really interesting work with the CIC regulator in the UK. He's going to talk to us a little bit about those experiences as well. So Mike Goodwill is a CIC, you adopted that form Tell us a little bit about the work first of all that you've been doing with the kick regulator around redefining the kick role in the uk
1: well i probably need just to preface that with a little bit about um, i i found over the years and bearing in mind we started as a limited company in 2008 and converted to a kick in 2009 to protect our social mission uh, i found that there was a lot of misunderstanding about uh kick uh, in that one there are two tight ty- two prime types one is uh by guarantee supported by guarantee and one is by share and uh, we chose the by share model because we already had shares in the limited company that we transferred into that and it was very much that value couldn't be grown in a kick and that the dividend lock made it so there was no value for investors to invest in kicks and actually both of those things are wrong Uh, if and i'll i'll prefer i'll make it very very simple out of my explanation is is that if somebody creates kick shares and they want to sell them back to the kick then there is a locked value wherever they create those shares at and paid the money in because they have to be fully paid up share capital right so for example if you create a hundred shares a pound each you've got hundred pounds worth of value on day one in day year 10 you decide you want to sell your shares back to the kick you get a hundred pounds back that's Absolutely crystal clear. But then there is a transfer value that people don't seem to realise or understand. And that is if you grow value in your kick and you create, you buy risk, you put your own capital in, you make sacrifices to grow your kick, there becomes a, a business value to that. That if you sell your shares on to another person who wants to carry on the social mission, then you can you can attract a, a growth in the share value that you put in originally within the transfer value exactly uh, in many ways like a limited company because a kick is a limited company but with additional levels of legislation that's what a kick is it's a limited business it's to allow social organizations to do business in a more business structured way that was the definition or part of the definition of why kicks exist I was um, I've always had a good dialogue uh, a very supportive dialogue with the CIC Regulator's Office over a number of years. And I raised some concerns with them about a number of things, about the kick structure. And so we, we extended that dialogue, and I was invited down to the Regulator's Panel, which I believe is held once a year in London, and uh, they review what's happening with kicks, and then they ask for additional information to be presented to that panel so that they can consider where it fits in. And it was a very interesting discussion. I went down and um, the night before I heard some news which actually broke the mold of many things. I heard that, and I won't name them, but uh, one of the social investment houses had bought shares in a kick at face value and later, some time later, sold them at an increased value. And if they can do that, that proved that the share value on transfer can be higher than the locked in value for share return as long as it's not been sold back to the company as long as it's not been sold back to the company and
0: i think it's probably important just to just to to, to raise this issue for listeners who might not be aware and particularly outside the uk the Community interest Company uh, legal form is a specific legal form created by the UK government for social enterprises and social businesses. Yes. And, and that's the reason that we're talking about it today on Talking Impact.
1: So at, at the panel, uh, I was asked to present my opinions of how I saw the, uh, the structures of CICs and what I saw were the opportunities and the disadvantages of what I understood as the interpretation. I've been reading about CICs for, you know, eight years now, so, or nine years actually. so And operating as, yeah, one as well, and an operating of one. but I don't claim to be an expert, but I've, I've read everything there is several times about CIC. And I presented the position of my concerns where um, how do, are we going to get people to excited enough to start businesses under CIC auspices as proper commercially focused businesses that deliver social change as a sustainable model for the future if there doesn't appear to be parity or near parity with the limited company model. They will choose, most people will choose limited company because it hasn't got that extra legislation framework. They can still do the social mission within that. Why should they choose CIC? Well, I explained at the panel that my, my reason and my part, business partner's reason, uh, the co-founder Graham Tompkins uh, of Goodwill Solutions, um, why we chose the CIC framework was to protect the social mission for the future. So there was a structure that was robust, secure, legislated uh, and reportable after we've passed ownership on to somebody else that they will still be obliged to keep the social missions and keep driving forward with that purpose. And that's why we chose CIC because it did give us that extra protection. What it didn't give and the uh, the CIC regulator uh, and the rest of the panel confirmed that, including one of the chaps who wrote the original outline in 2004, said actually CIC was always intended to allow businesses to grow in exactly the same way other businesses do, limited companies, etc., but to deliver a locked-in social value. Not to become sackcloth and ashes that somebody must wear and go without butter on their bread to prove they're a social business, but actually it was to allow people, innovative people who can create business to create social business rather than just business.
0: Well, let's talk about the features of the community interest company then Mike, because um, as you say, it's tied into the limited company structure, but there's some added caveats to, to, the, to the kick. To the kick structure, one of which, of course, is the community interest test and the asset lock that rests within the business. Yeah. So, do you want to talk to us a little bit about that, and uh, you know why
1: why the asset lock is something that you felt was important for Goodwill? Yeah. Um, many organisations accrue assets such as fork trucks and properties and racking in in, in our sort of industry, and at times in limited businesses. If directors choose to, they can sell that off. They can take, if they're a significant holding directors. they can take that money out of the business, declare it as their own income and make themselves more wealthy by using that, that money that's been accumulated and grown by the business. And in a limited company, that's part of the wealth growth model that's that's accepted, I think. Uh, community interest company, if, for example, you know we decided to sell our fork truck fleet, directors couldn't take that money out of the business. It has to be put back in and reinvested into the business, so if we sell our fortune fleet for 50,000 pounds or 100,000 pounds or whatever, that money has to go back into the business to, to develop either the business to deliver more social impact and change and, and become a more sustainable business and grow or, or used for social purposes. And that's absolutely fine, because that gives the business a level of uh, ability to retain assets and become, at core, a healthier business than a business where you can sell off the assets and take the money out because you end up leaving a shell. With a a CIC structure, you have to make the money work again within the social business. Now, either it goes to the bottom line and becomes your reserves, or it works towards business development for your next building or your next step or your next programme or you reinvest it back in for equipment within the business, but it has to stay in the business world. Oh, I love that idea because it means that uh, wealth is being used in a good way. You're creating wealth, you might sell some assets on and have to reuse those assets for strengthening the business. And that, you know, that is really good, positive stuff, which that lock isn't on the limited company model, only on CIC. And, and of course, it also gives confidence to stakeholders, you know,
0: internal, but particularly external, we think about customers, investors, that, that the business is a genuine, you know, has genuine social aims and mission and that the, and that the directors aren't going to disappear with all the
1: assets, you know, on Absolutely. Morning, so. We've been at the back with a wheelbarrow full of cash and things like that. <laughs> Go buy a Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> Two Ferraris. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And, and it's positive. Uh, it, it gives a number of positive Things. One is actually it's a declaration to the world that you are there for a period, a long period of time, because the assets are locked within the business. It's allowed us, for example, to buy our site at uh, Deer Park Road in Northampton um, as a statement that we are not renting this for five years or ten years on the lease. We've actually bought the building because we're going to be here forever, delivering social impact and change. Right, we then. It gives a statement to the people involved in the business, including employees and, and uh, team leaders, management, whatever. Actually, this business is here to give you a future, not just to earn a small select group of people a large amount of money that they then disappear. But you also have to look at the flip side of that. You know, um, In my personal example, I, the first six months I never drew a salary, the next, uh, in the whole first year I earned 2,027 pound. That was my entire salary. I was the only person employed in Goodwill Solutions who had paid less than minimum wage at the time. So I could have prosecuted myself for paying myself under minimum wage if I'd chosen to do so. Crazy world. But that's part of the sacrifice that you make in the early days where you hope, and it's it's never expected, it's a hope that the business will become successful enough to reward you for that sacrifice in the early years. Probably the first four years, Uh, first three years, definitely, I don't think I I earned less than £15,000 a year on all of those years. Uh, I'd come from a role which was probably £75,000 a year package. Uh, I gave that up voluntarily to start a social business of some sort. Um, And it comes back to the CRC model. The CRC model, it's a limited company model with additional legislation around it that puts asset locks in place puts dividend caps in place.
0: So obviously, I mean, you can talk about the benefits later on, uh, uh, you know, accruing the, the benefits of your hard work. In a CIC structure, of course, though, the dividend payments are capped at 35%. Mm. So some people see that as an issue that makes CICs unattractive, but, uh, you know, what do you think about
1: that? Well, actually, it's, it's I think it's, uh, the, depending on how you look at the combination, it's about 35% of distributable, cap, distributable capital. So, or, so you, you have to look and say, okay, um, there's an additional legislation that says that you must spend more than 50% of your profits on your social mission or growing the business to make the social mission more deliverable. So in actual fact, you've already got a 50% reduction on your whole profits before you get anywhere near your distributable uh, element. But if you look at most, most uh, sustainable businesses in limited company form and others, and people, very few get to distribute 35% of their distributable earnings anyway. So it's actually, it's a generous cap, but it's a cap. And, you know, uh, if you're looking at very fast growth, uh, equity investment type vehicles, then that may be a restrictor to some types of investor, but probably a very narrow slice of investors. But that, that level of cap is, is a realistic level that, uh, you know, that could be engaged. We've never distributed dividends because the mission for us has been to create a sustainable business that delivers social impact change uh, for, the, for our, our community. So therefore we've reinvested everything that we've ever uh, created in the way of profits. Um, so in nine years, no dividends have been taken by anybody uh, relating to Goodwill Solutions. Except the social investors who charge their interest rates, which uh, that's another day. Perhaps. That's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that the mechanisms that are in place are fair, I think they're workable. But the, the message at the CIC regulators panel was probably there's a marketing element by the CIC regulators office that needs to be done to explain the alternative side of the shared lock of the dividends to show that it's actually it's not an albatross that hangs around your neck it's a a really useful position and that there is an upside for people who want to engage in social business and create new social businesses and make sacrifices in the early years that there is a position for them to be rewarded in exactly the same way or broadly the same way as you would do it under a limited company hospice i think in 50 years time that every business could be a social business if it chose to be it's just how you frame up what you do, and it hasn't actually stopped
0: you taking investment. I know that you've 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 taken investment in debt form um, and in equity. The university, of course, is an equity partner in Goodwill Solutions. Um, so so it doesn't it doesn't prevent you as a as a company from taking on those different investment options if you need the capital
1: to scale. No, no. What you what you have to do you have to understand that uh, there's a world of social investment out there that can offer startup capital. Uh, you know, development capital in some ways, and as it gets to larger pots of money, it becomes more limited. But there are there are some mediums out there, normally based on debt models, uh, some in in an equity type share model, uh, but with social investors, you tend to give away more control at times or more regulation by them of how you operate your business, which sometimes can be. Challenging and restrictive, whereas on the commercial end, commercial investments, investors do not yet really understand CICs and how they can be, they, how they can invest to get reward out of them. Um, had four, you know, the big four, uh, Deloitte, uh, Ernst & Young, uh, Hayes and uh, whatever. Um, I actually got a review of CICs by each of them and all of them felt that CICs weren't investable. Because of the price lock on the share. Now that's a marketing function needed by the CIC regulator. And we discussed it in length at the review panel. Actually they need to tell people that it's only relevant. To selling the shares back to the CIC. That's when the lock comes in. But selling it on in a transfer arrangement to another party. It should reflect the value of the organisation you're selling. So there is an upside. For people who choose a CIC model, it's just not as clear as it could be at this time. And I think it will get clearer as we go forward.
0: But just to end the conversation around CICs then, if, if you were in front of the regulator now and they said, what is the one thing that you would change about the kick structure if you could? So the one change you would make to the legal form, what would it be?
1: I wouldn't. Okay. I think what is needed is better communication. About the benefits of the kick structure rather than the legislative limitations of it. One thing I would change would be on the government sites, websites, where it tells you about the kick regulations and all the bits that go with it. It focuses very much on the share lock, which is right to explain it, but it doesn't tell about the potential upsides you can develop with any business because it's taken that that's not within the legislative framework therefore they don't need to tell you well there needs to be a marketing element to it as well saying actually this is a fantastic model Uh, I think the marketing thing would, uh, would open the door to better and more structured bigger investment if we get the marketing of the CIC position right it's not it's not necessarily the marketing to get people to adopt the
0: CIC, it's actually the marketing to convince investors and, and, and other people who might get involved with CICs that actually there there is an upside to them and they can make a return on, on that investment.
1: If you if you um create the investment mediums for CICs to grow rapidly, then people will choose that model. Because a lot of them don't because there's that ceiling of investment over social investment you get you hit a barrier where you can't actually portray uh, the beauty of investing in the CIC to, uh, to what would be a commercial investment house you know people who look for a set return they want to put money in uh, a lot of them will do it through equity therefore they're looking for growth in share value they don't see that because the only statements out there on the government websites are that the share price is locked and when you get to the small print, you might be able to work out that actually it's not the share price is locked, the share price on return is locked to the business. But actually on transfer, it's a flexible value that, that reflects the value within that organisation. Bear in mind, there will always be some limitations, the assets are locked within the business, therefore uh, there's a there's a slightly different approach to valuing a social business under a CIC structure. Uh, whether by guarantee or by Share is, a, is another aspect that has to be considered on how you value those two things differently. But, um, you know, I like the idea that Goodwill Solutions in some ways has been a bit of a pathfinder organisation for what I call social business, social enterprise, enhance. I think it's, it's super social enterprise, you know, in ha- social business where you actually deliver a commercial business proposition that out of that you can draw immense sustainability that leads to continuing social impact and change for the local community. I would welcome more and more businesses to start that start with a commercial core that then deliver social thing. The world has been struggling for a long time to deliver corporate social responsibility. Most big businesses have CSR budgets and they don't often don't quite know what to spend the money on so they end up in renting clown outfits for all their staff, uh, to have community days where they stand around in their retail stores and entertain the kids and-, and
0: Go and paint community checks. Yeah, because goes. they
1: have to spend the money to, to, to justify their involvement in community. Actually, there's far simpler ways of doing that. It's look at your recruitment program, find out why your business has still got criminal record, yes, no tick boxes on its, on its application form because you immediately exclude people from that. Not every ex-offender is, is, is the type of person you think they are. The vast majority have made silly mistakes when they're young and by the age of 25 have grown out of any behaviours like that and want to sort their lives out and get in the right direction. But it's the limited opportunities that allows them to do that that makes them get into lifetimes of, of problems.
0: Brilliant. Well, there you go. That's a call to action from Mike Britton of Goodwill Solutions CIC around the community interest company legal form. And, uh telling investors you can invest in this, you can make you can make a profit from that investment and invest in social enterprises. Look, thanks very much, Mike. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us. Um, listeners, please join us again in October when I'll be joined by Paul Buck of Epic Risk Management Consultancy Social Enterprise who operate in the gambling sector. See you later. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for listening to the Talking Impact podcast brought to you by the Institute for Social Innovation and Impact. If you have any questions about the content discussed in this podcast, please email isii at northampton.ac.uk. For more information on the Institute's work, visit northampton.ac.uk
1: forward slash research. You've been listening to a Jump Media Group production. Talk to us at wejumphire.co.uk.